Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. Through this series, we bring you trailblazing by South Asians and for South Asians. We're the torchbearers, sharing the stories of the leaders and innovators lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I'm excited to welcome Serena Sidanti and Arian Agarwal, co-founders of Ria Collective. Ria Collective is a social shopping platform where customers can buy and consign global clothing and home goods from around the world, starting with Desi products. Serena and Arian have been best friends since they first met at MIT freshman year in 2006. After graduation, they moved to New York City to become consultants and bankers, as well as roommates. Then they both moved to the Mission District of San Francisco in 2012. Arian took a job at a then-tiny startup called Homejoy. She went on to lead North American platform and operations through their hyper-growth phase, and later served as the head of product for AI company, Finn. Serena, meanwhile, went back east to get her MBA at HBS and then worked in financial technology at Funding Circle for four years as their commercial GM of the U.S. business all the way to their IPO in 2018. They decided to start Ria Collective together in 2019 from their living room with zero capital. Since then, the vision has grown exponentially. They've been dubbed the Rent the Runway for South Asian Fashion and featured in Vogue. Earlier this year, they were accepted to Y Combinator, one of the most competitive startup accelerators out there. And to date, they've raised $2.2 million in capital. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thank you, Simi, first of all, for having us. So how's it going? What's the transition been like working from home in the middle of this pandemic and with everything else that's going on? This is a crazy time across the board for any company, any e-commerce company, especially, and not just like internally working from home, but even like dealing with the business model and what changes because of COVID, which maybe we'll get into. But in terms of on the surface of it, I think Erin and I have been really pleased with how our small but growing team has been able to adapt to working from home and to working remotely. We always had a pretty remote team. We have a woman in Austin, a woman in New York. So we had kind of like set up systems to work remotely anyways. And those have just, we've doubled down on them and they've just come in handy more now that we are all working from home and that too, like indefinitely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of setting up that infrastructure, I imagine that a lot of things have changed, like you were saying, because there aren't a lot of events happening. There aren't a lot of weddings happening. I mean, what kind of impact has that had on you guys? It's had a huge impact. I think, you know, just very high level talking through our story, we, as you said, launched in April 2019. We're very lucky to grow really fast and to find a market that people really wanted the product of renting clothing for Indian weddings. We knew that because that's something that we had faced our whole lives and wanted this product to exist. So it was exciting to create that and see so much demand for it. You're right. We started with no capital, but ended up raising a pre-seed round and a seed round within the course of like nine months. And we were in Y Combinator, the Silicon Valley Accelerator program as well, and kind of really thought we were poised to like take spring 2020 by storm because that was this wedding season. It's really like April to December is like core time for us. So 
were really excited to hit the ground running this year. And then COVID comes and, and very serendipitously, we had raised our round like two weeks before COVID hit. So we can talk about all of that and fundraising too, but it took us by huge surprise. I mean, at the time when COVID hit, Arian was in New York doing a pop-up that was far oversubscribed in New York. I was here. Our team was growing really fast. We were about to make another senior hire and we had just wrapped up our fundraise. So like you can imagine kind of the mindset we were in when then we realized, like, just as you said, there are no weddings and all of our acquisition and just customer base is entirely based on weddings. So I would say the first couple of weeks was really tough trying to understand how long is this going to last? What do we do? Do we like keep the team? You know, all the, all the questions that any entrepreneur was asking themselves at this point, we have ended up keeping everyone on the team and really thinking about, I don't think pivot is the right word because that would suggest we're doing something different, but really what we're thinking about is an expansion on our original idea and really leapfrogging to what our vision was and what we wanted to do with Rhea anyways, but we thought was like three to five years down the road, kind of pulling that up and doing that now. I don't know, Arian, if you want to maybe talk about where we're headed. Yeah, I think first, when we realized the impact that COVID was having on our business, we wanted to actually cater to our customers. Uh, that's something that like is our superpower, for better or for worse, is that we listen to our customers and we want to take care of them when they were going through such a challenging time. It's everyone's health is at risk and everyone's well-being is at risk. And so we started with actually launching services and, and communities for our brides because brides at the end of the day were the people who we were servicing and outfitting all of their wedding guests and making sure that their guests had and felt ingrained in their the whole experience with the wedding. Um, and so we did a lot of things to make sure that the brides knew that we were there for them and supporting them during the time that we wish nobody would have to go through. And then what, through that conversation that we had so directly with them and our customers was really allowed us to understand that there is a bigger opportunity here, not just with informal wear, that we felt would enable us to continue to service this customer in the unique way that we found that we could. And what we learned over the last year and a half of running Rhea Collective was that people love the experience of being part of the culture and trying it and wearing clothing that is authentic and representative of their culture or showing their support of their friends' culture. And we have decided to double down on that and starting with expanding the options that you could get. And first, removing that rental kind of component from the business and requiring you to have a date in mind for when you need an outfit for, that's the first thing that we've started with just in the last two weeks, where rather than requiring you to say, I need this outfit in July, you could just purchase it from us up front and get it from the designer that we work with directly. That's the first change to the model. And we're still in the exploration phase of what we need to expand on in terms of our inventory selection. But what we're seeing is people are still really excited about the clothing and excited to feel and find those outfits that we were able to source from India in a much more convenient way. So I think what you guys have touched on a little bit is, you know, you're not pivoting, but you're kind of re-envisioning, you know, can you get to where you wanted to be three to five years from now, right now? And does that make more sense? What was the original conception of this idea? Like, how did you stumble upon it? There were two parts of the original vision. The first was 
very need-based, which is, you know, we, when we started conceptualizing this idea, we were like 27. So we were right in the age when people start going to a bunch of weddings. So we probably had like five to 10 between like cousins, family, friends, and like friends of ours, like college friends, we probably had five to 10 Indian weddings that were going to a year. And each one, as you know, you need like two to three outfits and you don't want to repeat the same one. So it's the exact same thing that Rent the Runway came up to do. You know, you don't want to spend as much. These outfits are even more elaborate than like Western wedding outfits. They're beautiful and we really loved wearing them, but we would have to travel to India to get them and all these things. So we decided like, wouldn't it be just a lot easier if you could rent this stuff and you could rent things that really feel like trendy and exciting to wear and not like things you bought maybe four or five years ago in India. That was like the first thing that inspired us. But then I think underlying that and kind of related, but underlying that was kind of a broader thing about lifestyle and fashion and how we can integrate our South Asian identity and roots into what we wear every day. So yes, like we all know that, you know, you put on a lingo when you're going to a wedding and that's a time when you're going to wear something South Asian and be representing to some extent. But that felt so binary. It's kind of like, oh, you're either at a wedding or you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt. But was there like an in-between? And I, Erin has her story as well, but I can say like, that's something I experimented with a lot over the past like five years. You know, when I'd go to India and I'd find these stores that I really like or like designers or dresses that I can find on Instagram and I really want to wear it. Maybe they're like the fabric is more Indian. It's made out of like organic cotton or khadi. Maybe it's like something where the pattern or the embroidery is a little bit different. But it's not something where if I wear it every day, I'm going to stand out. I'm going to be like, oh, you know, I'm wearing a salvar kurta basically to brunch. That's not going to be what I'm doing, but it is going to catch people's eye. It's something that people are going to look and be like, I've never seen anything like that before. And maybe it's like a jumpsuit or a blazer or something like that. So as I started to experiment with this clothing, I was like, I just would love for my whole closet to be like this. Like, I think it's so exciting. It feels like me. Maybe that's the most important thing is like, I felt like all up until then, you know, people had been like, oh, you're not a fashion person to me. And I was like, I don't actually think that's true. It's just that I haven't really found a store or a designer that I hadn't really found one that really resonated with me and that I felt like, okay, when I put this on, I feel like I'm being authentic to who I am. And so for me, when I found these brands, it felt like opening up this whole new area of the world. It was like opening a treasure chest and you're like, okay, like this is what I really want to wear. And so yes, we wanted to cater to the weddings and the need of like being in a pinch and needing something, but also use that as a gateway to open up this idea of like dressing differently and more creatively and in a way that like maybe represents you more or feels more authentic to you. And how can we bridge the gap between like these designers and artisans in India who are doing amazing work and us sitting here not having access to that at all? So that was kind of the original three to five year vision that we wanted to like pull up to now. And really COVID's given us maybe an opportunity to like broaden thinking about the wedding business to something like way bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And so what was... The first thing you guys did when you came up with this idea? I mean, first thing when like when we decided when we really started to explore it in the last few months, knowing that like long term, this is a really cool expansion. I mean, we started talking to our customers. Um, We really wanted to talk to the people that had had used us before people who would be in our target demographic, people like us, people who have an attachment and affiliation to Indian culture and no way to access it. Um, Like Serena said, I think 
the ability to change people's mindset about Indian clothing is one that we think we can do because of this brand and this community that we've built. Because what would be really sad is if, you know, people constantly think when they think of Indian clothing, they think of, you know, the Sari Palace in Berkeley and the older styles that you are get and the Salvars, like she mentioned. What we've seen and what we found is that there's all of this access and this supply there. And so we started talking to people who travel to India very regularly throughout their upbringing and people who um, know fashion and, and kind of understand, are, are we seeing the same thing that you are when you look at this clothing? And are, do you see, would you want this? Do you have the same desire that we have to access this and to give back to a community and to a country that is producing this? Um, and when you read more and more about even these fashion houses, you understand that, in fact, a lot of those high-end designers are manufacturing their beautiful clothing in India. A lot of the makers are based in India. And what we've when we even uncovered that, we realized, okay, something doesn't add up here. Like, there's no reason why they can't benefit directly and their name can't be on the label if they're the ones that are the creatives and doing the handiwork for this. And so we just learned a lot about it as well as learned a lot about the customer needs. Yeah, I think that's probably a unique testament to all that you guys have accomplished so far and your ability to pivot even now. Did anything surprise you in terms of going to these designers, especially those that were up and coming or even these big ticket designers like Sabyasachi? Did anything just catch you off guard when you were interacting with them? Or was there anything else that surprised you in the process? Yes. Yeah, a lot of things surprised us, but probably the main thing was the positive surprise, which is from the US, we don't understand the depth and breadth of innovation that's happening in fashion in India. And unless you're pretty plugged into it, it's really hard to know. But there are so many big and small designers. Like before we started Ria Collective, we had never been to Shopur Jot in Delhi, for example. And because every time I go, people had been like, oh, yeah, you should shop at like, you know, Frontier Ross and these places in South X and at the mall and stuff like that. <laughs> for those who maybe haven't been there, it's this small little unex totally unexpected alleyway with just hundreds of stores of like up and coming boutique designers, a lot of them, some of them have been there for 20 years. Some of them are like, you know, 30 year old women just trailblazing, like you said, creating these new brands, like kind of they've gone to fashion school, maybe, or maybe they haven't, and they're trying something new and different. And we spent a week just walking around there last September and meeting these designers in person and talking to them. And it's just amazing to see how inspired they are. And they are starting something from scratch, taking a big risk, putting capital into starting this all because they have some vision about fashion. And you look at the items they produce, and maybe it's a black jumpsuit with like a gold Indian pattern down the side, or maybe it's like a sari blouse, something made out of like sari blouse fabric, but it's a skirt. You feel so inspired looking at what they've created. And that's kind of was the impetus for us to be like, we need to show this to like a bigger part of the world, like the Indian diaspora across the world. Because frankly, it gives us a lot of pride to see like our clothing represented that way. And so yeah, I think the biggest surprise to us was how many there are like that, how they're all over India. I mean, we're t we went to Delhi and Bombay, but there's so many in Calcutta and Hyderabad and Bangalore, like everywhere. And they're all thinking so eco-friendly and sustainably, like they're starting from that as just like a first point of non-negotiable, you know, and part of it is like, that's where the Indian market has always been. Like a lot of the Indian clothing is actually hand woven, hand spun or like organic cotton. 
it just wasn't ever marketed that way or talked about that way. So now there's this really big opportunity to talk about that clothing differently and like showcase it in a new light. Yeah. And to go off of that, you just touched on sustainability. And I think it's super interesting that that's something you guys have incorporated in terms of the vision you've set out for Rhea. I'm curious what you see as the main differentiators of your business. I think there's obviously, there are a lot of South Asian fashion brands out there. A lot of them have expanded into e-commerce, Rent the Runway just partnered with Sani. Like, where do you see your space to play? Yeah. So originally with the rental business, um, which will still be like part of the new vision as well. But originally with the rental business for us, the differentiation was always about the clothing itself. First of all, not that many companies were doing rental. But as you mentioned, Rent the Runway got into it. We always wanted to have the widest breadth of SKUs and like the most cutting edge inventory. We didn't want to be, you know, if you're coming to us because you just need something for a wedding and it could be like a 10-year-old Langa. No, it's like this is going to be things that because the US is kind of like 10 years behind India in terms of Indian fashion, you know, we wanted to have that stuff and really be bringing that to you. And the other thing we said to each other is like, we're never going to design the clothes. We don't think that's our expertise. We're not the ones who are coming up with like what those designs are. We're really the experts at the supply chain and the technology to bring that stuff to you like most seamlessly, but really be showcasing the designs of Indian designers and even American Indian designers. So that was the differentiation. Now, as we expand this idea further, I think we, I see us as being the first kind of holistic lifestyle brand and platform for South Asian goods in the US. I don't think anybody's done that or at least hasn't done it at a like mass scale. There are like, if you go to Edison, New Jersey, that's pretty much what they're doing just at a mom and pop level, you know, that they're bringing you, you know, whether it's the jewelry, it's the clothing, it's like the stuff you need for Holi and Diwali and all these things, you can find it all there. But has somebody done it online in this like large scale way? No. And so I think as we expand, we'll just be differentiating more and more. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I'm from Atlanta. And we have this mall called Global Mall. And if you walk in, it's just like a line of South Asian fashion stores. You have the jewelry store, you have the South Asian Dance Academy. I mean, it's like a hub for that. And there's a ton of mom and pop shops that are also doing this. But this is a great way to scale and bring it into the next generation. You know, you just touched a little bit on how you guys are focusing on building this supply chain infrastructure in-house. What have been the challenges that you guys have dealt with in the course of building that into the business broadly? Well, rental, of course, is just a huge logistical challenge. And then when you couple that with clothing that a lot of dry cleaners, you don't build dry cleaning in-house, which we obviously didn't want to do. And the runway is the largest dry cleaner in the country. We're not trying to compete in that cost bucket. You kind of couple that with like, yeah, clothes that dry cleaners are not familiar with. It creates this pretty like long lag time between rentals. What we dealt with what we and how we mitigated that was obviously these clothing weren't being used in the middle of the week. So we were able to get down our operations time and the ability to turn over the inventory to every week so that, you know, on the weekends when weddings were happening, our availability was high. Um, so that was one thing. And then we, we built the technology in-house to manage the inventory and to manage 
where we were storing things, what the status was and how to get it out to customers. But it took many months and it took a lot of trial and error. Um, and it's, it requires manpower at the end of the day as well. And that's something that we've factored in when we've discussed what our long-term vision and how we continue to expand and scale this business and how we want to change and adapt that so that it might not require as much manpower to actually execute on a sale or a rental or any transaction. So Serena worked in fintech prior to this and was the GM of the US business of a, a large fintech company. And I have experience in operations and AI. Like we kind of took our past experiences in running organizations and building them into account when we were setting up these systems, which I think really enabled us to create something that was both robust, but also fluid at the same time. That's actually a great segue to something that I'm curious about. You guys were obviously working full-time jobs and have this breadth of experience. When was the moment of like, okay, we're going to quit and do this full-time? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And it kind of goes back to something that we have recently learned how to like put into words, which is, I think some people, some co-founding teams find an idea and then they find each other to work on that idea. Our story is the opposite, which is like, since we graduated from college a decade ago, we have been clear about starting a business together. So oh, wow. it started really from me and Arian and the idea that this is probably the fifth idea that we've like played around with starting from 2011. Like we've explored so many different things that we've been excited about. So our story of how we came to RIA Collective is a, a little bit different probably from the classic like, oh, we were just kind of found a pain point and started it. It's like we were actively looking for a long time <laughs> for like, what's the right business for us to do together? And that's been our dream like for such a long time. So it's interesting because all of the other ideas we had done were more in our wheelhouse. They were like really technology ideas, nothing to do with e-commerce, which neither of us have worked in before. So this idea, that's where I say this one was so funny because when we look back at it, we were in this series of like testing different ideas for the past decade. But this idea really was the first one that we were building for solving for ourselves. I don't even know, and we go back and forth on this, but I don't even know if we thought this was a real idea we were working on or if we were, I don't think we did. <laughs> Arian's shaking her head. I don't think we, we were like, as we experiment with other real ideas to turn into a business, this one's just something we really wish existed. So we should just do it. Wow. And so this one was very much like, so we lived in the same building in units like on top of each other. And if that hadn't been the case, I don't think we could have started Rhea because we effectively use our own clothes and stuff them in like our own closet, got clothes from friends. And we had people come in like on the weekday evenings or weekends to like try clothes on. And, you know, and, and basically if someone was coming, we would like text each other and be like, all right, whose apartment should they go to? And then like <laughs> ask them to buzz that number. And then they would go up there and like try on the clothes. Sometimes both of us would be there. Sometimes one's working out. So the other one would take it. This was very much where like, this just has to exist. Like, it's so obvious. It's like a $20 bill in the middle of the road. Like someone just has to pick it up, you know, and do it. And it was only after, Arian's mentioned a few times how we pride ourselves on being really customer centric. It was only after, like, because these were literally happening in our living room, we met like hundreds of women through this and they started telling each other about it, like word of mouth. And then on the weekends, we'd have like back-to-back -back appointments on Saturdays and Sundays. So we met every single customer for an hour each and talked to them while they're changing and all that stuff about like their problems, like why they like this clothing, all that stuff. We got to really 
understand the customer so deeply. And I think that's the point at which we were like, wait, there's like really something here, maybe more than any other business we've tried to start. Because with previous businesses, it had always been like, we have a great idea. And then we put it out there. And then you're like, people kind of want it. But with this one, it was the opposite where it's like people really want it. It's almost like we don't even have the idea fully formed yet. But people are like, you know, banging down the door to get to our product. And we're like, okay, we've never really felt that yet. And now we understand what it means to kind of almost be in that like product market fit, where it just feels like this wheel is turning. And and then at that point, we had so many logical reasons not to do this. We're like, we don't have capital, we're kind of in our early 30s, we're going to start families, like, you know, all these life reasons, like maybe we want to move out of the Bay Area, like so many things. We've never worked in e-commerce, we're not fashion people, reasons that came to mind that we're like, we shouldn't do this. But what trumped everything was we were just like, we've obviously created something that has so much demand behind it that if we follow just kind of a gut feeling that we need to follow this and see where it goes. And then we kind of gave ourselves like a year where we're like, let's work on this and put everything into it and not question it for a year, like quit our jobs and be a hundred all in. And once we did that, I feel like there was no like turning back at that point because business continued to do well. And we also became like more and more passionate about the problem. Yeah. A couple things I wanted to add is there are two moments when we were working full-time jobs that I will never forget. One is the first time we got an order on our Shopify store from some complete stranger in Texas that ordered one of the like five dresses we had on our website. And we looked at each other. First of all, it was like a Saturday morning and we were like, and she needed it for the following weekend. We looked at each other and we're like, do you know her? Because I don't know her. And (laughs) we didn't believe that a stranger not even in our network would have heard about us, let alone actually trusted us enough to order a dress. And it was, there were many weeks where we were just, I would take like, I remember taking like bags to work with clothes in them that I needed to take to FedEx and then ship to customers all across the country because we were getting orders. Another moment where, like Serena said, I think it was the end of 2018 when we were going down this path of like, okay, what do we need to do? Because it's actually not fun anymore. We are working full-time jobs and we're waking up on Saturday morning and we're helping five strangers in our living room for three hours, trying on these dresses, checking them out, and then figuring out how to return it, have, have them return it. And we're like, we need to make a decision. And we had these, again, like complete strangers in our living room who were going to India and it was their first trip to India. And they were going and they needed three outfits each. And they tried them on. And within an hour, they had spent $1,000 with us. And they were so happy. And they came back from their India trip and they returned the outfits. And they were so grateful. Like, I've never seen two people so happy. And they showed us all the pictures and everything. And I just remember feeling like, okay, we could give this a real shot. There's something here. And those two moments, I think I'll never forget from the early, early days of Rhea when, you know, it was just like a small, small idea that hadn't really gotten its full shot yet. That's really exciting. And it busts this myth of how founders typically have this eureka moment and then they make it. Like the fact that you guys were serial entrepreneurs, I think is so important for people to learn that, hey, that's the way a lot of people do it. Yeah. And I should say all of these previous ideas were always side businesses. So that's another thing. People think like everyone quits their job and just like starts things. I mean, we always had full-time jobs and would just work on this stuff on the side. It's like, 
people are like, oh, so it's like your passion or your hobby to work on startups. I'm like, no, it's just who we are. Like, we're always just thinking of ideas and trying to do something on the side, I think. And so this was the same way. We did it on the side for over two years before we decided to quit, you know? So that's another, I think, myth that people think like, if you're passionate enough, you just quit your jobs right away. I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you guys went to college together and graduated together, but co-founder relationships are obviously hard. I mean, how did you know that the other was the one? We talk about this a lot, but the thing that we most have in common and that we have more in common with each other than we do with anyone else really is values. It's our values and the way we manifest them. And so that's a reason why I don't think I could start a business with any of my other friends or with anyone else. The values that we kind of hold dear, at least the way we, we talk about them together, have a lot to do with trust and like what we think of as like a quality work and ownership. And so I think we're both, we're both pretty strict with ourselves and with each other, which is like nothing can ever like dip below the bar and we have a pretty high bar for everything. And so I think that would make it very difficult for anyone else to work with us. But we kind of hold each other to that standard and we, we see that standard the same way. And then regarding trust, just like having that feeling that, you know, no matter what we go through or, you know, if I give something to Erin to do or she gives something to me to do, I know it's going to be done well and it's going to be done thoroughly and it's going to be done with like full passion. And it's hard to explain what that means, I think, tactically, but we knew that we had the same values when it comes to those things. And I think that's what, even though we're actually very different personality wise, those values tie us together and give us like the ability to co-found a business. Yeah. I think I wanted to jump off of that last point of like, we're, we're different and we bring complementary skills as well. Everything Serena said is so true. And I think the thing I wanted to add around like the complementary skill set is one of the, I think, best compliments I feel like I've gotten in recent months or years is from one of our early investors a couple of months back in the middle of the pandemic we were chatting with a bunch of other founders and you know this angel investor has invested in hundreds of companies in her career and she talked about the two of us and she used the phrase that I was surprised by but when I reflected on was like I'm so proud of that she was just like I've never met a stronger co-founder team stronger than Erin and Serena. And I think that's very true in everything Serena said and everything in the fact that we complement each other really well. It kind of goes back to what I was explaining that like, I think for us, this business or any business we do starts with the two of us. And then it's like, we could work on any idea. This happens to be the one we're working on now and we're excited about it, you know? But like, God willing, this will be the first of like many businesses we start together. No, that's amazing. And you were just talking about investors. And I mean, fast forward pretty quickly, you guys are accepted to the winner batch of Y Combinator. And for those who don't know, Y Combinator is one of the foremost startup accelerators in the country. They've invested in Airbnb, DoorDash, Instacart, you name it. What was that like? How did you guys feel when you realized you were getting this check and investment? Yeah, every time that someone has invested in us, it was like less and less surprising. But I would say the first checks we got like pre-seed round, I mean, 
Yeah. Right now, till date, we've raised $2.2 million. That's an amount that, I mean, we've never seen in any of our personal bank accounts ever in life. So you're just shocked first that like people think that highly of you and your business that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is really. And it's like such an, it's an awesome feeling of validation and confidence that you get from it. With Y Combinator specifically, I think the actual check they give you is smaller. It's 150 k So by then we had raised more than that. So it wasn't about the money as much as it was for us like this opportunity to learn and to like soak in this knowledge from the partners, but really more so even from the other companies. So there are like 200 other companies that are in this batch and so many before us that have done e-commerce, that have built fashion marketplaces. And so we kind of saw ourselves as like sponges going into these three months of YC. That's like, what's everything we can learn? What's everything that we, you know, and the partners are great about being pretty ruthless about your business. Like they were kind of the first ones to say to us, like, you guys should switch your model and not hold inventory, which is insane for a business that does rental. But it was a really good challenge to us. It's like, what would we need to do to believe that we could not hold inventory? Like, how can we challenge ourselves to think differently about this space? And a lot of changes have come from things that either they said or we learned from other companies in YC. So we really saw that as like a huge opportunity and like a catapult for us. And, and it was massively helpful in raising our seed round as well. And you guys are obviously not just founders or entrepreneurs in any space. You're South Asian and you're innovating within the South Asian community in a way that's so relevant to all of us. I mean, what are some of the key things you've learned through that process that you think are important for other South Asian entrepreneurs to know? A couple things are coming to mind. It's a great question. A couple things are coming to mind. One is the beauty of innovating in the South Asian space when you are South Asian is this thing about solving your own problem or solving something where you are the customer. I mean, Arian mentioned we worked in like fintech and AI before this, and I love both of those spaces, but I was always creating something, building or growing something for a customer that I didn't fully understand. Here, the what's awesome about doing this is every product or feature or dress that we put out there, the first thing we ask ourselves is like, would we wear it? Would we use it? Would we buy it? And that's not to say like we know everything, but it's it's a really gratifying feeling. And then also when you do solve it, even if it's a micro thing that you solve, you get this really great feeling like, okay, I really know this customer and I know that they're going to feel better or feel happy when they see this thing. And it's, it's awesome. So I think that's something I love about like innovating for a space that we innovating for South Asians by South Asians, like you said. Also on the flip side of that, there are things that you almost like need to watch out for, or which is to say you can, because you are South Asian, you think that you can blanket the experience that South Asians are having. And I think that's just not true. So I, for one example is I explained earlier that I really have this desire to wear things that like authentically represent me. And when I see Indian things, I feel like they do. So I thought everyone felt that way. And I was like, okay, great. Like we're going to use this messaging about representation. But actually a lot of very astute South Asian women were telling me, you know, I don't feel that way. I don't necessarily feel like I need to represent my identity through my clothing. I think that there are other reasons it's exciting to wear Indian clothing, but that's not the one I resonate with. So it's sort of like you can take your South Asian identity and try to extrapolate it too much. And you have to also realize that like, obviously the diaspora is so diverse and everyone's experience with identity is very, very unique. 
so yeah, you just have to watch for both sides of it. But I think it's it's like a really exciting space where not enough innovation has happened. Erin, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I was thinking a little bit, even on the fundraising side, to add to what she said that like, we obviously, being women and being South Asian women are talking about a problem space that a lot of investors don't understand. We spoke with a lot of white males, part of these bigger funds and smaller funds. And the pain point that we so passionately came in with was just falling flat in a lot of those conversations. But what we firmly believe and what I think helped us eventually find the right person to partner with was that there is a big need and this customer segment is growing in size in a unique point in time, even in its like evolution, let's say, because there's so many second generation Indian Americans now and that they're highly educated and there's no product or service that really caters to them. And so the point that I'm trying to get at, I guess, is like, just because you feel like your community is so small and you might be thinking that you're building for some small segment of the population, it doesn't really matter because you're solving something that's such an acute pain point and that pie is growing and you understand it better than anybody else. And I think just like really having that belief in that and commitment to it and ignoring the people that won't understand it and the feedback that they're giving you that it's not big enough of a market because they don't exist in it is invalidated. But you need to have, I think, that courage and conviction behind it, which it took us some time to build. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. For me, I sit in content. I love producing content. And I've always thought about that. You know, I love producing content around the South Asian community, but I'm also a woman and that could be a bigger community for me to tackle or there's all these other avenues. But I think this is what I get excited about. And I think there's an ability to have a unique perspective here because of my identity. And it's interesting to hear how that translates to your business as well in the context of fundraising. Totally. What's next for you guys? Obviously, you guys have spoken about this pivot in terms of re-envisioning RIA in the context of COVID and everything that's going on. But how are you thinking about RIA more broadly as a business and in terms of your leadership of this business? The only way I can really answer that is like we have big dreams and ambitions for RIA Collective, if that hasn't come across <laughs> already in the past 40 minutes. Yeah, I think the sky's the limit for the business, which is really odd to say at this time, given we are facing a pandemic and it's uniquely impacted our business. And I think a lot of people would say we're crazy to think that our business that has effectively needed to start from scratch over the past two months to believe that it could be as big as it can. But I think the past year has given us a lot of confidence that we're operating in a space we know in a place that hasn't really had enough innovation and that we really feel confident that we're the right people that can really take this vision forward. So we find ourselves with the opposite problem over the past two months, which is like, as we think about the pivot, it's almost like we keep making the idea like bigger and bigger and bigger. And we have to tell each other like, okay, remember, we have to like start small, but we see like so many exciting directions this can go in. And sorry to be vague, but you're catching us at like the pivot time. So if we talk again <laughs> yeah. in a few months, we can probably be more concrete about like where we're heading. 
but I do think like there's just there's a lot here and we hope like we'll be able to see it all the way through. So I think we both see ourselves like working on this for many years and continuing to grow like the team and this idea. Yeah, as big as we can. Well, I'm super excited to see where you guys take this business. I think like you both touched on, this is something we need. And so I think people are going to be really excited to hear your story and keep up with all that you're doing and where you're taking this business. So thank you guys for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Simi. We love what you're up to. And yeah, look forward to connecting again soon. Thanks so much. This is a podcast from Trailblazers Media. For more content on South Asian trailblazing, follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram and Facebook.